Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger is joined by the 23rd governor of the state of Arizona, Doug Ducey, who is also serving as the chair of the Republican Governors Association. During his time in office, Governor Ducey has continually cut regulations and simplified taxes to stimulate job creation and economic growth, and has also focused on developing dynamic civic education for youth. Roger and Governor Ducey discuss the future of the Arizonan and American workforce, semiconductor manufacturing and national security, and the future of Republican governors in America. If you enjoyed the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Governor Ducey, welcome to the show. Let's just start with your background, of course, elected in 2014, reelected in 2018 in a state that perhaps was a red state before, but the composition has changed and it's more competitive for Republicans to get elected. Uh, looking out to 2022, 2023, what do uh, Republicans seeking public office in Arizona see when it comes to the party profile of the state? Well, I, I want to say first, I think that Arizona still is a red state. It's a center-right state. We had the wind at our back in 2014, and we won by 12 points. We had the wind in our face in 2018. It was a tough year for Republicans, and we won by a larger margin, and we actually took 44% of the Hispanic vote against an opponent named David Garcia. So I do think these, these principles of opportunity for all— a growing economy, uh, the ability to climb the economic ladder, and then the thing that states are in charge of, which is education for children and Arizona leads in parental choice, that these are winning issues. They're kitchen table issues. They're issues you can get into any room in the state, any stripe or demographic, and, and make that case because people do want to create a good life for themselves and their family, and they care about what their kids are learning inside these classrooms, and they're concerned about what's being told. And that's where I think we've, we've built this majority coalition in Arizona. And as we head to 2022, I hope that the candidates see that this is a winning formula and that you want to play a game of addition versus subtraction. Addition versus subtraction. We're going to get to education and civics. I know have been a big priority for you. Opportunity, obviously, is something that you've employed in trying to make kind of a signature um, uh, set of uh, policies out of, out of Arizona. You came in with a billion-dollar budget deficit. Recently, you put through a tax package that reduced taxes in your state. Yet the deficit is under control. How did you do that, and where do things stand with respect to tax policy and spending in Arizona? Well, first, we had a plan. 
Uh, we did come into office and there was a billion dollar deficit, a sluggish economy, and the education system was mired in lawsuits. And we just completed the last legislative session. We have a billion dollars in our rainy day fund. Our budget is balanced. We paid $2 billion in debt down, and we've got the lowest flat tax in the nation in Arizona at 2.5%. But it was that first year of tightening our belt and making the tough decisions. I came from the private sector, Cold Stone Creamery, the right. ice cream company was my business, and I'd been through boom years and, and bust years. And we always had a uh, expected budget, an optimistic budget, and a pessimistic budget, a worst-case scenario. And I knew that if I could balance that budget in that first year, that our economy would begin to grow and, and heal. And if it didn't, begin to grow, we'd be happy that we balanced the budget because we'd have our spending under control. So it was an imperative. It was the shortest legislative session in Arizona history. I met with every legislator. I said, I want to know what's on your mind and let you know that I can't be helpful with any of it in this session because we've got to balance the budget. But I'm hopeful that as we have available dollars going forward, we'll find things to work on. And you made good on that. Um, we'll talk about education in a second, but Later on, you invested in public education, increased teacher pay 20% by 2020. Uh, so I guess those legislators you know, were happy that they, they made a deal with you. Um, you met with every single member of the legislature? I met with every single le member that wanted to meet with me. <laughs> okay. There were some that were just not going to be on board. And, uh, but, but it was very much that sitting down, you, you know what's important to me, state of the state, the campaign, all of those things. I want to know what's important to you. I want to talk about what's possible, but but also make sure you're aware of, of the reality of our current situation and the problem that we have to solve. And and I ran on balancing the budget. So you really do need to take advantage is that, of that. Is that a winning platform, balancing the budget? It makes sense in terms of what you need to make in a, success, you know, a successful economy, right? An economy that works. But to a voter... I mean, what's happening in Washington, you don't talk about balancing the budget right now. It's all about how much can we spend to give some, some demographic, some citizen, you know, a new entitlement. How is that a winning Well, first, I would say it's not the only part of the platform. <laughs> okay, okay. okay, the platform's okay. got to be a little bit larger than that. But I think everybody knows you have to live within your means. I mean, this idea of... Uh, not spending more than you bring in is is pretty simple. Every small business owner, every family, everybody out there in the real economy has to live under those rules. Why doesn't government? So I found as as part of a larger package, the idea of being responsible of of spending less than we bring in is something that made sense, and we were actually able to bring it to life. Let's go back to one thing you said about the election, your election in twenty fourteen, and then. Uh, of course, in 2018 as well, but the Hispanic vote, that got a lot of attention in 2020, uh, that Republicans did better uh, with the Hispanic community than they had in the past, although still not commanding you know, majorities or even plurality, but, but the numbers were going up. Was that a focus of your campaign? What do you see and what have you learned in Arizona uh, where you know, you've heard other commentators say is that Republicans need to make sure they're focusing on that community because Democrats may be taking uh, that community for granted. Republicans, conservatives, should not play identity politics. We won't be any good at it. So people should be our priority. 
each community should be our priority. And what I really found getting outside of the traditional Republican rooms, which of course I spent plenty of time in, inside them, is that our message on tightening our belt, making decisions, providing opportunity, and making sure your kids are getting an education of value for the seat time inside the classroom, is there's, there's no demographic that doesn't embrace that message. That's something that I think every candidate across the country should do. And I know in many of these settings, people had never heard anyone who was running for office. They'd never seen a, a political speaker. And I think that's a great opportunity to ask for people's votes and to answer the tough questions. And, uh, and I think it's, it's part of getting in the room, going where you're not necessarily comfortable and making the case. We've heard others say that. You have to engage with those communities. And, and just because it hasn't been the path you know, chosen before by previous office holders, those seeking office, you got to get in that community because the agenda will appeal to them regardless of you know, whether they self-identify as Republican or conservative. My experience is going into those rooms is you get a lot of credit just for showing up, mm. just, just for being there. And then if you can make the case, if you can answer the tough questions, you're, you're going to win some votes. You're going to change some minds and some hearts. And that's really the business we're, we're in. Let's shift a bit, but you, this is all grounded in opportunity, whether you're from a Hispanic community or any other community, you want to be uh, in, a in a community, in a state where there's opportunity for growth to enhance your station in life. Uh, you've gotten a lot of national attention in Arizona for your work with the semiconductor sector. That's for a couple of reasons. One, uh, with supply chain shortages that we're experiencing due to the global pandemic and because of the conduct of China and what's going on in Asia, we're all realizing those little semiconductors control everything we rely on in life from our cars to our iPhones. Intel announced a $20 billion expansion of its manufacturing operations in Arizona. Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, that's a mouthful, but that is the world's largest premier semiconductor manufacturing company. These are high-tech industries, high-tech jobs. They're all coming to Arizona in the case of Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. It's a $12 billion investment. What is going on in Arizona that you're the hub for semiconductors and are going to save the United States from reliance on kind of an international supply chain that clearly could put us at risk? Well, thanks, Roger. We've got even more in, in the pipeline, and I'm much more comfortable talking to a chief executive, a business owner, or decision maker oftentimes than I am talking to a legislator. There were semiconductors and Colston Creamery? Is that what <laughs> Well, I think I, I know what motivates a, a, a business person. I know what's important to them. When I ran for office, I had support from the business community, and a lot of people said, oh, I love Arizona. It's great. I'm going to stay here and retire here. But my son or daughter, who just graduated from you name the college, they can't find a career or apply their degree here. Well, it's been five years since I've heard that. We have more jobs available than we have people to fill them. These are high-tech, high-paying jobs with a, a thriving service community. And one time, you know, governors are pretty collegial, and we were all sitting around a table together at one of the National Governor Association meetings, and uh, the governor from Oregon said, where do you go to, to do economic development? And, you know, one person at that time, this is several years ago, said China. Somebody else said Taiwan. Someone else said the UAE. When it came to me, I said, I go to California for economic <laughs> development. Um, and we 
literally sat down with companies uh, that weren't going to scale businesses there anymore, didn't like the high tax, high regulation, unwelcoming feel. And today they are in Arizona and they're thriving. So you hit on a few things there. Obviously, a lot of national coverage of companies that are relocating out of California because of the tax burden, because of the regulatory burden. In the semiconductor space, you have the federal government right now saying, hey, we need manufacturing in the United States. We can't be reliant on international supply chain, particularly one in the case of Taiwan that's so close to China yes. that's our competitor, perhaps, um, uh, you know, really could put us at, at economic risk. Workforce challenge. You need to have a highly skilled workforce, regulatory burden, tax burden. Take, take us through what you have to kind of do, what the recipe is in your state to make it attractive, not only for an Intel that already had a bit of a footprint, but to a Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing company, right, where their hub is out in Taiwan. Is it just give them these incentives um, alone? What, what, what are they, what, how do you get the deal done? Well, we look at it like this. It's opportunity for all, special favors for, for none. And on the workforce side, one, we do have an incredibly talented workforce in Arizona, but we're also blessed with some excellent universities in Arizona State University and the University of Arizona, led by Michael Crow and Bobby Robbins, respectively. NAU's doing a very good job as well. And then using your community colleges, which can really adjust curriculum to address that workforce as they're coming up. And then Arizona is one of the number one net in-migration states in, in the country. So it really is a supply-side principle, this idea that once you win the company, it, they will come, people will come. Supply-side, so Reagan-esque, or you can, you know, if you build it, they will come uh, approach. And, and, and you're talking about workforce in particular right now, that people re relocate. I, I'm talking about workforce, which I think that is first and foremost. You have to have the talent. You have to have the pipeline of talent. Uh, we have an overused word, but it's true now in Arizona, this ecosystem of what is happening in the semiconductor community. And you addressed very much how important these things are from everything under the sun, from your car to your washing machine to your kitchen uh, appliances. And, and there's a shortage of them. So the Taiwan Semi conductor, the Intel investment. These are all real validators that Arizona is a great place to work, build and scale a business, get an education and raise a family. Let's drill down on that a little bit more. Um, the Arizona Commerce Authority announced the formation of a national semiconductor economic roadmap. I, I went online and watched the, uh, the promotional video, tried to kind of understand exactly what this was. It highlighted all the elements that, that we were just discussing, regulatory burden, tax policy, workforce. Um, what's interesting, and I couldn't quite conclude from watching the video and reading the material, was where is it in terms of industrial policy? And by that I mean, and this is a debate in Washington, although maybe there's consensus for semiconductors, how much should government be involved in providing those incentives? Um, and and what what is kind of the National Semiconductor Economic Roadmap going to do? Like, how much are they asking the state to perhaps compromise, right, or or you know make a special exception to get this done? And I know you're saying opportunity for all. I heard you a minute ago, but there seems to be you know 
the public component really needs uh, to be present and, and work at this, correct? Well, I, I think it should be little to, to none in terms of the incentive package. I look at our Arizona Commerce Authority as the marketing arm mm -hmm. of state government. Uh, CEOs make a decision based on a number of factors and metrics. Number one, nobody moves to a state where they do not want to live. So just having a great quality of life, uh, great opportunities for your kids, uh, cultural experiences, those types of things are, are first and foremost. And then, of course, they're going to run a spreadsheet on that. But there's a lot of other states where they could go where it would be less from a, from a price perspective. Mm. It's the overall value proposition that I think that Arizona has been offering. And the fact that we've also been trying harder, that we're actually sitting at the table and assuring people that you'll have a better tax environment year over year, each year of the administration, and we've been able to deliver on that. We've actually reduced, eliminated 2,700 regulations in Arizona. That's the equivalent of a $150 million tax cut annually without costing the general fund a dollar. And I think it was the focus on those things, the ability to communicate that to leadership of a company and say, not only is this a great place for you to do business, but over the course of time, your senior management, your top talent will want to reside here. How do you respond when Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, mouthful, TSMC is the easier way to say we it. We call them Taiwan Semi. There we go, Taiwan Semi. Where they say, well, the Germans, they're, they're giving us state subsidies. The Japanese, you know, whoever else, you know, they, they all give these, they, they, they subsidize businesses. Uh, Arizona Sun's great. It's a beautiful place to live and a great place to raise a family. You know, are you at all hesitant that you can get across the finish line because they're used to subsidization from the state? We, we don't get into bidding wars. I was trained at Procter & Gamble. Business that's won on price will be lost on price. Now, I know that our federal government worked with Taiwan Semi on that, and I think they were doing that from a defense perspective. A security standpoint, and, yes. and So that's a different story. But from a state perspective, we have some things in statute but whenever it gets into that, that bidding war, we say you're likely going to go elsewhere. We want you to make the right decision for Arizona long term. And you can look at our record from the companies that you just listed off, and along with Lusa and Nikola and Electra and Mechanica. I could go on and on on this. I think we've won more than our lion's share of businesses. And what I find, it is the New York states of the world that are normally hanging out a large cash incentive in some of these things. We say we can't participate. But the other states that have been our toughest competition have been places like Texas, right. Tennessee, and Florida. And if you look at these states along with Arizona, you see great places to live, low taxes, light regulation, and the government is going to stay out of your way as an entrepreneur. And workforce. And, and the Reagan Institute is running a task force right now on U.S., Manufacturing Competitiveness and National Security. We have former chair and CEO of Lockheed Martin, Marilyn Houston as a co-chair, and Dave McCormick, CEO of Bridgewater. Uh, their work on this task force has really pointed to workforce as being the number one challenge. You hit on it before, you have great uh, universities and, and community colleges, and you get people coming in who are trained from elsewhere. Are you at all concerned that that's gonna be the long pole in the tent for delivering uh, the manufacturing jobs that are needed to sustain, you know, the building going on with semiconductors in Arizona. Well, I, I hope it is because that's the one that you can solve when you can say to people, Hey, we've got great jobs available 
from the construction of of Intel's you know hundred thousand square foot f- fabs that they're going to you know build one after another to the the fact that people can go to school, get engineering degrees, get accreditations, do uh, these types of of internships and apprenticeships, and then have a high paying job and long-term security in their community that that's that's a problem that's very solvable and that's not only great for arizonans that's great for people that want to move to the state of arizona arizona is a state 72 percent of our adults were born somewhere else including you including me toledo ohio right toledo ohio and it's a it's a very welcoming and inviting place um let's move on you know a big priority for you um you've led on is civics education in 2015, Arizona became the first state in the nation to pass the American Civics Act, requiring students to pass a civics test. Take a minute just to explain that. It sounds like, wow, why did it take till 2015 to give civic, you know, to require civic hygiene? Well, I think we're all concerned about uh, what's happening in, in our schools, the lack of, of knowledge of our country and our history and our values that our young people have. And it's basically just stopped being taught in so many places. Somehow, some way, it became controversial. And I was actually invited to an event uh, along the campaign trail where Charles Krauthammer, Mm -hmm. may he rest in peace, and Richard Dreyfuss were at the same event. And they conducted a debate. Krauthammer representing the right. Not not, not obvious bedfellows there. (laughs) Dreyfuss, the left. And at the end, they said the only thing Mm -hmm. that the two of them agree on our American civics, our foundational documents, and the Federalist Papers. Now, they interpret them differently, but they have the argument, the debate, and the discussion, and like Margaret Thatcher said, uh, win the argument, then win the vote. Mm -hmm. So it was at that dinner that I, the next day, went out on the trail and said, if I'm elected governor, uh, Arizona kids are going to learn American history and civics. And basically what our kids are doing in Arizona, the same test that a newly naturalized legal American takes is now the test that our kids have to pass before they can graduate high school. It's one small step. It's 100 questions. You'd get 98 out of 100 without looking at it because you were raised this way. It was, it was part of every curriculum and subject that you took. But now we have the Sandra Day O'Connor Civic Celebration Day. That's a full day all day in every school committed to civics. We think there's a lot more that we can do on that. Now 36 other states have followed suit, and uh, and we want to continue and to address it. 36 states followed you. That, as a governor, you got to feel good <laughs> about that. Um, I'm wondering why uh, there are about 14 who, who haven't figured it out yet, but um, well, I'm hopeful that they, they follow. I want to stay on this for a second because out at the Reagan library and we've discussed this on on the show before, we're running something called the time for choosing series. Mm -hmm. And we've had a number of uh, colleagues of yours like you leading voices in the conservative movement and the Republican party. And almost all of them, I think every single speaker from Paul Ryan to Mike Pompeo to Nikki Haley recently and others, former vice president, Mike Pence too. They all are hitting on this issue of restoring American pride, making sure the educational system is teaching our students how to look at our country's history and past in a positive light, at the same time being honest about our past too, and to strive for a more perfect union. Um, 
Let me ask you, Nikki Haley said the following in her speech recently. She said that Democrats and those on the left have adopted an anti-American worldview. And she used a very interesting device. She quoted a president, uh, a speech by President Obama shortly after he took office, which she said that no Democrat would say today where effectively President Obama said there's no white American or black American, right? It's the United States of America. And, and she stood for the proposition that conservatives and Republicans are the only one who, are, who, would, who would say that today. How do you get at this issue? Clearly, civics has been your priority. We just discussed it. Um, is this really a difference between the parties all the way down the state level? Is that what you're seeing in, in Arizona? Unfortunately, it is a difference between the parties. It's, it's rather new. We just celebrated Columbus Day in the country, and I don't know if you saw the proclamation that the Obama administration put out in the 2008 or 2009 around Columbus Day. You wouldn't see that out of a Democratic administration today. The fact that they flew the, the founding flag, the, what we call the Betsy Ross flag, and now that's been co-opted where, where companies call it a, a racist symbol. Somewhere something's gone wrong. So I think that, that um, Ambassador Haley touches on something that we are seeing at the state level, although I do think the majority of Americans know that we have a, uh, an incredible history and that we can tell it and we can tell it factually. Yeah, you said before, as I was laying out the question ineloquently and too long, um, that we could do both. What do you mean by that? That we can talk about our, our history. We can talk about this upward climb. We can talk about this search for a more perfect union and the, the greatness of our founders with all of their flaws and how the, the world was in 1776 and the 18th century and the ideas that inspired them and then the improvement that we've made decade over decade. We are a very, very young country at 245, 246 years and one, how we've changed the world, how we've been a beacon of hope and light and the fact that people flock to our shores and thrive inside our states is a result of, of that history as flawed as it has been. So I think we can tell both sides of it. And as we've seen uh, the issues like slavery, like inequality with the vote, we've addressed those along the way. I know there's more to do, but I think we should celebrate a, a lot of the great things that have happened in the example that we've been for other nations around the world. And the system, those founding values and the constitution that they constructed allows us to become a more perfect union. I mean, I think that's, that to me is a, is a point that really resonates that. And, and, and so we should embrace that system because it allows for, for progress. I think George Will said that elected leaders come and go, but it's the Constitution and the American creed that are eternal, and that's what need to be protected. Now, of course, your perspective is not limited to Arizona these days. You are uh, a lead the Republican Governors Association. Uh, you're chair of that association. Of course, the RGA has, uh, organizes uh, the Republican governors. There are, I believe, 27, so the majority uh, of the governors in this country are Republican. Uh, election coming up. Uh, part of the role there is to make sure Republican governors get reelected and elected. How's it looking? Well, I think it's going to be a very good year for, for Republicans. Like you said, we have 27 Republican governors today. We're the only Republican 
conference in the country. I don't think there's ever been. Just explain that. You're the only Republican conference in the country as a way of saying Republicans don't have majorities anyplace else and at the federal level. But we have a majority as as governors. And I don't think there's ever been a greater contrast between Republican governance and Democrat governance than through the pandemic. If it weren't for Republican governors, the country would have been shut down. But Republican governors showed that you could protect lives and livelihoods across this nation, that we could get kids inside of schools, that we could get teachers vaccinated, and we could catch our kids up. So we have 38 governor's races across the nation. These are our toughest and most uh, competitive states, places like Florida, Georgia, Ohio, Texas, even Arizona is on the map. And we think we have real pickup opportunities as well in places like like Maine, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Kansas, and New Mexico. And the Republican Governors Association is to find the best possible candidates and then to get them over the finish line. Lives and livelihood. And this is what Republican governors did during the pandemic, um, getting students into school, but also doing it in a safe way. Is that going to be top of mind for the voters, do you think, in November? Well, we believe so. We believe so. We think that many people were, were crushed through the decisions of the left and the closet authoritarianism. That closet authoritarianism. Is this kind of freedom, not Fauciism, is what you hear in some states? I mean, what, what, do, you, what do you mean? Well, I just think you, you want to look at the, the different states, I mean, and how the, the media, uh, the left, and the Democratic Party combined on this messaging that somehow lockdown was leadership. And it was rejected by the people inside the states. We saw that it didn't work. And people that brought a more balanced and targeted approach with our, our, our values and our rights at the forefront saw that they could manage it in a better, more effective way, serve the citizen and protect the community. Serve the citizen, protect the community. And, and there was kind of reinforced a very important conservative mindset or outlook, which is lead locally right? Tailor it for the communities. And with the pandemic, uh, that, that's the case, kind of mandating it from on high uh, in Washington is often, when it comes to public health, not the way to go about it because every community is different. The numbers are changing. Everything is is really dependent on an area. I, 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 well, it's I straight like, out of Reagan's first yeah, inaugural, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. This idea that the, the states are there for a reason. Yeah. Um, which race do you think is 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 kind of a, a pickup opportunity, you think, kind of, kind of the mindset where it's a democratically, you know, kind of a majority or, or one that people would assume would go democratic. Well, we have Paul LePage, who's going to run again in Maine. Uh, we think we can win there. We think Gretchen Whitmer is going to pay heavy consequences for her behavior and, and hypocrite hypocritical behavior in, in Michigan. Kansas is a red state and we're going to make it red again. And uh, we think New Mexico is very vulnerable as well. We think all four of those are, are real pickup opportunities. And I would add Wisconsin as well. Okay, great. W- w- Wisconsin too. Of course, you hear Wisconsin, you think about not just 2022, but a critical state in 2024. How much should we look at 2022 as an indicator of where the country is for 2024? Well, first I'd say, let's just look at 2022. <laughs> okay, I think it's very important that we focus on what's in front We're of us. here in Washington, D.C. Yes. So, you know, it's always a presidential election year. And the, it, the best thing we can do is bring a record of accomplishment and achievement and then success in 2022 to, to lay the groundwork for 2024. And the other thing I'd point out in many ways is we've proven as Republicans that we can win the governor's race in any state. 
We have Republican governors in Massachusetts, Maryland. There's a Republican governor in Bernie Sanders, Vermont, is a Republican. And if you remember in 2009, it was kind of a shot heard around the world. Republican governors won in New Jersey with Chris Christie and Bob McDonald in Virginia. Mm -hmm. We've got a great candidate in Glenn Youngkin in Virginia right now. We're very hopeful that he can get over the finish line against Terry McAuliffe. Jack Cittarelli is, is closing the gap against Phil Murphy. But I think that focus on the ideas that they have and, you know, uh, Glenn's running on how the state of Virginia was run during the pandemic. Right. And you're seeing what's happened in Loudoun County and some of these counties that were renowned for their academic excellence. And they've been very hesitant to get kids back into the classroom. And it seems like the school boards are more concerned about social issues, more concerned about masks than math. And uh, More concerned about masks than math. I mean, in the D.C. area, so we're seeing all these commercials, and there's no, uh, no question that Youngkin's emphasizing education uh, and, and having parent involvement uh, in education. Um, but tough race. It's going to be a tough race. Virginia's turned out to be a tough state, Northern Virginia specifically. But, uh, you know, this is why you play the game, right? This is, let's let the people vote. Let's Glenn Youngkin make his case. People are seeing what Terry McAuliffe is saying during these debates and the fact that he doesn't think parents should have a say in their children's education. One is a, a, a real spark for school choice. And two, it could turn the state of Virginia around with new leadership in Glenn Youngkin. Yeah, that's getting a lot of attention. We have a couple minutes left before we get to the lightning round. I do want to get you to weigh in on border security and immigration. It's uh, an issue once again, a major issue, uh, a security issue. Arizona, of course, a, a border state. Uh, you went down to the border with a bunch of other governors, uh, called out the Biden administration, had a 10-point plan uh, you're advocating for. Uh, where are we right now with this border crisis? And what are the kind of one or two or three things, if you could go across the street here from the Reagan Institute over to the White House, mm-hmm. make that walk to Lafayette Park and just convince President Biden to do one, two, or three things, what would they be? This is the third president I've served alongside and, and by far the worst. Hmm. Even Barack Obama deployed the National Guard to the border. Under President Trump, he deployed the National Guard, and my, my fellow governor, Jerry Brown in California, complied and put the National Guard at the border. This is not illegal immigration right now, Roger. This is mass migration, and it's all illegal. President Biden has given a symbol to Mexico and South America that our borders are open and this dangerous travel will be rewarded. It's the drug cartels that are shaping the policy. Myself and Governor Abbott in Texas have deployed the National Guard with state taxpayer dollars to the border, but it's like a balloon. If we can slow the the tide at our borders. They're going to New so Mexico, the guard California. Will, will make an impact. I the mean, guard it, will make an impact. Law enforcement will make an impact. The border strike force will make an impact. We'll continue to in, invest in stopping human trafficking, drug trafficking, and child sex trafficking. But this is a federal responsibility. President Biden, Kamala Harris are ignoring it, and so is Secretary Mayorkas. Why? How do you explain it? Well, they they both raised their hand during the first Democratic debate and said that anyone that comes over the border illegally will receive free health care. Lopez Orbador, the president of Mexico, has called Joe Biden the migrant president. 
Uh, this is a problem that can be solved. It has been solved before. It was largely solved in the previous ad administration. I can't explain why they are ignoring it because there's nothing humanitarian about it. You see th these stories of these young girls, 51% uh, of uh, our experience violence or sexual assault on this, on this journey. And it is traffickers that are taking advantage of them, in addition to the fact that we don't know the people that we're not catching. We've apprehended 1.5 million people. That's lar larger than nine American states. It's the people that we're not apprehending. We don't know where they come from. We don't know what kind of malintent that, that they have. And then we see these families that use their life savings to be exploited by the cartels. Just We'll, we'll wrap up with this and go to lightning round, but it, it's interesting just listening to the way you're, you're, you're framing it. This is not against lawful migration. This is concern not just about illegal immigration, but also that this is a humanitarian concern. This is not immigration, and I don't think we should confuse the two. This is border security, which is national security. We talked about that, bad actors, but it's also public safety. This, this fentanyl and methamphetamine that we see in every large city, every school in our country, this is coming over the, the southern border. Then there's the humanitarian part of it. And last I was told, we're in the middle of a public health crisis. These people are coming across the right. border. They're not tested. They're not vaccinated. It's very hypocritical on behalf of the administration, and it needs to be addressed. The governors will continue to do this. And we had 26 Republican governors sign on to this. Because when I ran in 2014, border security was a state issue for the four border states. Right. This is now a, a, national. a national issue, and you can see the impact. Let's go to the lightning round. This is where we ask all our guests uh, to share with us their favorite Reagan book, favorite Reagan speech, uh, favorite Reagan quote. We'll take all through three, two, or just one. What do you want to share with us, Governor? Well, I would say in terms of favorite Reagan book, it'd be Reagan in his own words or Peggy Noonan's uh, when, when Character Was King. I, I love both of those. Asking about Reagan's favorite speech, you, it'd be better if you asked which decade. <laughs> okay. okay. But I will say for me, it's time for choosing. I think it's got a special place in every Arizonan's heart because that was in support of Barry Goldwater right. in 1964. And in Arizona, we say Barry Goldwater didn't lose that election. It just took 16 That's right. years you had to, wait till to count the vote. And, you know, Reagan <laughs> brought that, that conscience of a conservative to, to life. And then the last one, was, it was book, quote, quote oh, uh, I would say I love what he says in the first inaugural, that it, the federal government didn't create the states. It's the states that created the federal government. I do think we miss a big opportunity. And I say this as a governor, and of course, Ronald Reagan was a successful governor, that if we push these things out to the laboratory of democracy, governors are collaborative, they're collegial, but at the end of the day, we're competitive. We would want to solve these problems, and we could take these dollars and I think be much more innovative in a way that's not top-down, one-size-fits-all, addresses our own local communities, and then good, good ideas like, like American civics, mm -hmm. uh, like universal licensing, like um, telehealth. It's available throughout the state. Other governors take these ideas and apply them in their state, sometimes with attribution, sometimes <laughs> without. But it's good for the people of, of the country, and it also has them more involved in their local government and their state government, and they can make that positive impact. A perfect quote for our governor. Governor Ducey, thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Roger. It's great to be here.